You're listening to the Scottsdale Podcast, which features our Sunday sermons. If you would like to learn more about what God is doing in the life of Scottsdale Baptist Church, visit our website at scottsdale.org. Enjoy and be challenged by the word of the Lord. Well, good morning and welcome to Scottsdale Baptist Church. My name is Jeff Poteet and I get to serve here on staff as one of the pastors and it's a delight to be able to gather today with you and to worship and study God's word together. If you're watching us online or on our campus, we're so grateful that you continue to join with us as we join God in his work of transforming lives. Now, I know in our culture today, there are a lot of political conversations that are going on, a lot of controversial issues that we deal with on a regular basis. And, and one of the most controversial that I think that we see is the issue of gun control. Now, today, my goal, I know that there are so many different positions on this. My, my goal is not to, to take a side, to introduce multiple sides, but for us to, to gain a point of agreement here together. And that point of agreement, I think that we can all agree on is that violent criminals should not be able to legally purchase guns, okay? We're all pretty much in agreement with that, I think, right? Okay, I think so. The most of the world agrees with us in this, uh, the UK being one of, those, one of those areas. The challenge is back in 2015, where they had a string of, of crimes that, was, that were committed, a string of shootings that were, were taking place. Several included homicides, where the guns that were used had been legally purchased by criminals. Seems a little confusing for a country that has some of the strictest gun control laws in the world. We might look and say, well, why, how in the world did that happen? Well, come to find out the guns that were used were considered antique guns. Guns like that were used in the Wild Wild West or in World War I or in the Revolutionary War. And there was a clause in the law that allowed for anyone to be able to purchase an antique gun without it ever being registered, without it ever being known or commissioned by the police. So the criminals in that area found a way, found a loophole, they exploited it so that they could purchase guns legally and then use them to commit crimes. People love loopholes, don't they? If you're a parent, you know this to be true as well. Had this experience, some of you are laughing, some of you are knowing, know exactly what I'm talking about. We had this experience not too long ago in our family. I walked into the living room, it was about dinner time, and I told one of our children, I said, hey, it's time to turn the TV off. As you can imagine, the TV went off immediately. <laughs> it actually did that time, it went off immediately that time. So I walked out of the room to get the dinner or whatever we were doing, I walked back into the room and you can imagine my confusion when I walked back in and the television was mysteriously on again. And I said to this beloved child of mine, I said, I thought I told you to turn the TV off. To which they replied, I did exactly what you told me to do. I turned it off. You never told me I couldn't turn it back on. People love loopholes. Kids love loopholes. Criminals love loopholes. You and I love loopholes, don't we? We love loopholes because it allows us to create a system by which we are never, ever in the wrong. We can justify our actions and feel like we've never committed any kind of crime or anything that we've done could be held against us. We want to establish the rules in such a way that the scales are always tipped in our favor. As we open and look at 
Jesus is teaching today, we notice that there's another group of people that does the very same things. These are the group of people that we know as the Pharisees. We're gonna pick back up now in Matthew chapter five, verses 31 to 48. So that's what we're gonna be meeting here in just a few moments. And in Jesus's day, the Pharisees sought to create a law that they could manipulate, that they could, they could adjust to accomplish so they could convince themselves that they were right before God, that they were in good standing with the Lord. And so today we're going to break our message into two major truths as we consider our own lives in light of this scripture. The first that we're gonna look at, big overarching truth is this, that functional Pharisees look for loopholes. Functional Pharisees. We look at Pharisees and we're like, oh, those guys are the bad guys. But so often we fall into their camp where we look for ways to get out of doing what God calls us to do. We'll also see a contrasting truth that kingdom citizens listen to Jesus. These are gonna be the two major truths. And if you are with us in VBS, kingdom citizens listen to Jesus because Jesus changes the game, right? This is for you guys that are in VBS. So let's pray together and we will jump in to our passage. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this opportunity to to study it together. We pray that as we open it, as we seek to hear from you, that you would speak to us in a clear and compelling way. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So if you would meet me in Matthew chapter five, we're gonna begin in verse 31 and we're gonna work our way to the end of the chapter. So loophole number one that the functional Pharisees looked for was this. They looked for a way to leave. In their lives, they looked for a way to leave. Notice what Jesus says. It, says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. And you guys, wow, you're jumping into the, the deep end of the pond here on the very first point. Well, this is what Jesus is teaching us across the Sermon of the Mount. Remember, this is a, a sermon that takes, several, uh, takes a significant amount of time, and we're working through it together uh, in our gatherings But in Jesus's day, marriage was considered a sacred duty. If you were 20 years old and you were a man and you were not married yet, that was a significant problem in this culture. They viewed you almost as if you weren't going to be able to inherit the kingdom of God. It was was considered a sin to not be married by the time that you were 20. They often looked at those guys and thought they were very unmanly in their approach to life. Now, some of you may be sitting here and say, well, is that what the Bible teaches about singleness? Like, if you're not married by 20, is that, is that like it? Does God look at you with disdain? Well, this was a picture of Judaism, but it's not the picture of Christianity. Uh, we see in scripture that God ordains singleness for seasons of time for people. He also ordains singleness for, for a whole life, for a particular kind of ministry. So rather than uh, demean and uh, being dishonored as a, as a single person, God elevates and encourages even in our, we see in the scripture. In fact, this passage was spoken by our Lord Jesus, who was 33 and was single. So we see that scripture, even in this, does not, uh, does not demean, but it in t- oftentimes God ordains it for us. So to put it lightly, the Jewish people had a, a drive to get married, a high drive to be married. But if you have been married for any length of time, You know that the challenge isn't to get married. The challenge is often to stay married. This is the case in in Judaism, but add to that reality that culture in that day had a very low view of women. So there's a high drive to get married, a very low view of women. F.F. Bruce, a scholar, says this. He says, a wife 
in that day was bought, regarded as property, used as a household servant, and dismissed at pleasure. So in the first century, women were not highly regarded. Women were not elevated and encouraged in their lives. We see this, and as we think about these two realities, a high drive to get married, a low view of women, oftentimes men in this culture looked for a way to legally leave their marriages, looked for a loophole to get out of their commitment and their covenant. So they looked for a biblically sanctioned way to do this. Jesus, in this passage, is actually quoting from the law. He's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 24. This is what it says. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, she departs out of his house and can go and marry another. What we see is the loophole. It's right there. If, she, if he has found some indecency in her. Now, this word, this clause, created a significant challenge in Jesus' day. You had two opposing views of thought. You had one pharisaical view led by Rabbi Shammai. And Rabbi Shammai said, no, that word indecency is only limited to adultery or sexual immorality. But then you had another group of people. His name was Rabbi Hillel. I know you guys are wanting to name your kids this one day. But he expanded that view. He said some indecency could really be anything that displeases you as a person. It could be anything from, there's another woman that's more beautiful than my wife. I found some indecency. There's another woman that's more beautiful, so I'm going to put my wife aside and go marry her. It could mean something like, she embarrassed me in front of my friends. It could even mean the indecency that I found is that she burnt my breakfast this morning. And they would put their wives away for these kinds of things. Now, I'm sure that you can't imagine which one of those schools of thought had the greater following, can you? Well, I think that we probably can because it's the one that our culture follows most closely today. It's the one that says, Whichever, whatever thing that I don't like about her or I don't like about him becomes the reason justifiably for me to leave a marriage. And while it's, it's easy for us to pick on the Pharisees, we can say, man, their attempts are so lame, but we do the same things. Think about some of the indecencies that we consider in our marriages. I'm just, I'm just not happy anymore. Or he's not as thoughtful as he used to be. Or She's not as exciting as she once was. Or this is going to be better for the kids. All these loopholes that we as functional Pharisees begin to look for so that we can leave what we've already committed to. So this is the first loophole. They looked for a way to leave. But there's a second loophole that Jesus addresses. And it's this, that they looked for a way to lie. They looked for a way to lie. Notice what Jesus says in verse 33. Again, you have heard it said that it was uh, to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Now, the Pharisees are masters of the law. They know the law inside and out, have it memorized front and back because they are the teachers of Israel. But what the challenge is that they would take the words of the law and they would twist it to fit their own agenda because the words they are speaking here are true words. These are God's words that they are reading. 
They quote from the following passages. In Leviticus chapter 19, it says, you shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. They also consider Numbers 32. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. The problem was that the scribes and the Pharisees began to teach that only the laws or only oaths made to the Lord were binding oaths. You could swear by all kinds of other things. You could swear by your beard. You could swear by the mountains. You could swear by all kinds of things and you would not be bound to keep your oath. You know what this is like. Whenever you were a child, you remember this oath that you would make. I cross my heart and hope to die. Stick a needle in my eye. This was your, your oath so that people would believe what you were going to say. Then you got a little bit more savvy and you would really make the oath without all the, the eyes and stuff, but you would come time to pay up and what would happen? I had my fingers crossed behind my back. And then your friends, they figured you out, right? You did that one time and they said, ah, you're not going to do it again. So they made you put your hands on the table and you guys had to do this. And then what happened? You crossed your toes. Isn't that what happened? Yeah, some of you guys are telling yourself. And then you try to do all kinds of stuff. I crossed my hair. I crossed whatever it was to try and get out of doing what you have committed to do. The older people got, they swear on their mother's grave. But then they say, you know what? My mom's not dead. So I don't have to do what I've committed to you. Or people that say, you know what? I didn't put my hand on the Bible. Therefore, what I just committed wasn't an actual oath that I'm going to be bound to. You know, I'll be honest with you, which is one of the ones that you start hearing. You're like, I'm going to be honest with me all the time. It's easy for us to, to insert little lies into our lives, isn't it? To try and impress people, to try and be somebody that we aren't, to spice up daily conversation, to get somebody to agree with you or go along with your plan, all the while not planning to keep what you had promised to do, all the while not being the person that you were saying that you were. You see, we live functionally pharisaical lives when we look for ways to lie. Not only did they look for a loophole to leave, a loophole to lie, the third loophole that we see is that the, the functional Pharisees looked for a way to hold a grudge. They looked for a way to hold a grudge. Notice what Jesus says. Because you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Again, this is a real Bible verse. The Pharisees aren't going to some other book of, the, a book of common sense or book of wisdom. They're drawing scripture verses and teaching them in a way that is not in keeping with God's word. You see, they, they took the scripture and they twisted it to fit their agenda. This particular verse was meant to be applied in the court of civil law. It was something that was to protect the people of Israel. It was to make sure that the punishment fit the crime. But what happened was the Pharisees were saying, no, 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 no. You take this law and it becomes a command for personal retribution. You become the judge, the jury, and the executioner whenever somebody has offended you. You desire to exact the payment that you want to get out of them. And it's your job to go and do that. They took it out of the proper God-ordained realm and they put it into a place of very subjective and personal preferential 
opportunity for people to exploit. Now, we love this, don't we? We like the feeling of being able to dole out the punishment for the crime that we think has been committed against us. We like to be able to, 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 to pursue or to be unkind to our spouse whenever they offend us. We don't want somebody else to speak into our lives and say, you know, that doesn't seem like it fits the crime. It doesn't seem like it fits the offense. We want to be the ones that feel justified whenever somebody's offended us to say, you know what? I'm going to get what I want out of this. I'm going to fight fire with fire. I'm going to give to them what they gave to me. And we feel justified because we look at a verse like this and say, you know, the Bible says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's up to me to get what I need out of this situation. God's word calls us to something different. Then we also see the, the loophole number four that Jesus helps us in. Loophole number four is that they looked for a way to hate. They looked for a way to hate. Notice what he says in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, some of these verses that we've seen Jesus quote from the Old Testament were verses that were twisted. There are verses that were taken maybe out of context. Then there are also verses that we see that actually take some editing to get what they want to accomplish out of them. This verse is one of those verses. It's a common teaching, but we see that it's been taken and it's been edited to fit their personal preference. In fact, it's quite different than what we actually see in the law. In Leviticus 19, 18, we read, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You see, not only had the Pharisees omitted love your neighbor as yourself, they had added and hate your enemies. You see, the word of God never told them to hate their enemies. What they did was they took the word of God and they said, you know what? We can justify this hatred by saying, no, no, what, what God was saying was it's only the, the neighbors that are in Israel. You see, everybody else outside of Israel is not our neighbor. Therefore, we have the opportunity to hate them because they're not technically our neighbor. So they, they taught the law in such a way that they were commanded to just love other people of Israel. And they were allowed, even commanded, to hate those outside of the people of Israel. You see, we do the same thing. We narrow the parameters of our preference in who we want to love, don't we? We decide the parameters that we are comfortable with and we love those people and exclude and hate everybody that doesn't fit into that parameter. We love those that are like us. We feel free to hate those that are different. We feel justified even sometimes to express hate towards those that are different than us. See, Jesus draws our attention to these loopholes and he wants us to know that loopholes never lead to life. Looking for loopholes never lead to life. This kind of looking only leads us to try and justify ourselves, to justify our actions under a false pretense of righteousness, where we, are, we say we're using the Bible to, uh, to prove these things are true and good for us. All the while, Jesus wants us to do something different. He wants us to be something different. While these things might seem like they're justifiable for us, they end up leading us away from the Lord rather than leading us to the Lord. Jesus wants a different quality of our lives, where the righteousness that we 
live out, isn't based on a technicality. It's not based on a way that we change a word, but it's based on true transformation of our lives. They listen to Jesus is what he is calling us to. Transformation takes place as kingdom citizens listen to Jesus. And we listen to him by hearing his principles for our lives, by hearing his word to us. So we're going to see now four corresponding kingdom principles that help us follow Jesus and listen to him in our culture. Kingdom principle number one, Jesus calls us to pursue permanence rather than permission. Pursue permanence rather than permission. Notice what he says in verse 32. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. What the people of the day wanted was a way to leave. Jesus helps us to see that God's way and plan has always been for us to work for a way to stay, to work towards a way to stay. Jesus teaches his disciples where the emphasis should be. Whereas they wanted to put the emphasis on all the things that they could come up with to get out of a marriage, Jesus says, no, you should look for what God has designed marriage to be. Here, Jesus puts the emphasis on the permanence of marriage, not the loopholes that help us to leave marriage or allow us to leave This has been a common conversation for Jesus. We see in Matthew chapter 19, the Pharisees came up to him again and tested him asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Rabbi Hillel's plan. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. In this passage, Jesus reiterates what he teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount, that God's intention for marriage, regardless of what the court may say through a piece of paper or political agenda, has always been one man and one woman for one lifetime. This is God's plan for marriage. Jesus here does not deny that there are legitimate grounds for divorce. He talks here about sexual immorality. In 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about desertion, and cases of abuse. But God's intention and our focus shouldn't be on searching for the exception in our marriages. It should be focused on pursuing permanence, focused on pursuing the things that are going to build up our marriages, not looking for ways to leave them. This is what Jesus is communicating to the crowd. Kingdom citizens should listen to Jesus by pursuing permanence. This should be our aim. This should be our goal. This is we, should be what we strive for each and every day of our marriages. This is the way that the world is, set, is the church is set apart from the world. This is the way that kingdom citizens should be viewed in our culture. Men and women putting aside their personal agendas for the sake of living for the glory of Christ in their marriages. Now, it would be foolish of me here today to assume that everyone in here has been in a permanent marriage for their whole lives. 
I know that there are some of you here that have walked through the trial of divorce, whether it was for a reason like sexual immorality or desertion, whether it's for abuse, we recognize that there are people who have walked through these trials. And the goal today isn't for you to hear from Jesus that you should be ashamed of where you are. What Jesus is calling you to today is to pursue this where you are today. Pursue this from here forward. If you've been, if you are remarried, pursue this in your present marriage. If you are divorced and you are single, God is calling you to have the right view of marriage as you move forward in life. The picture is always permanence, and this is what Jesus calls us to. So Jesus teaches us that we are to pursue permanence rather than permission. This moves us to our second kingdom principle, that we are to pursue integrity over impression. We are to pursue integrity over impression. Notice what he says in verse 34. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You'll recall that the Pharisees said, you can take an oath by the, only by the name of the Lord and be committed to it. The idea would be, as God is my witness, is the only way that you're bound to your oath. Anything else is acceptable to break. But Jesus points to the fact that God is the creator of all. He is the Lord over heaven and earth. So the earth is the Lord's. The heavens are the Lord's. The temple is the Lord's. Your hairs are the Lord's. Some of us have more than others, and those are all counted by him. But those are the Lord's. And so anything that you commit to, if you break that, you are dishonoring the Lord. If you, if you say that those things are the way in which your oath is, is binding, and you're using that in a deceptive way to try and make an impression on people, try to get your way, try to advance in the world, that those things dishonor the Lord. In other words, the oath formula is irrelevant. It's the heart behind what you're saying that matters. It's why you make the oath. It's why you say you will. It's why you say yes or no that's important. What your goal is, what your intention is. And Jesus isn't saying the oaths are altogether wrong. We see that God makes oaths. We see that there are times that we make oaths. What he's telling us is this. Kingdom citizens should be people whose words are so characterized by integrity that whenever you say yes, you should be able to be counted on. Whenever you say no, you should be able to be counted on. He's saying mean what you say and say what you mean whenever you're communicating with people. As believers, people should not have to question whether when we say we're going to do something, we actually do it. People should be able to be confident that we are going to be people of utmost integrity in our actions with them, in the business world, in our families, with our neighbors, People should be able to look at kingdom citizens and say, that person's telling me the truth. I can believe what they say because they follow Jesus. They've been transformed from the inside out. So their, their word is their bond. Whenever they say they'll do it, they're good for it. We also see uh, a third kingdom principle that Jesus gives us. He calls us to pursue peace rather than payback. Pursue peace rather than payback. At first, whenever we see this in this passage, he continues on in verse 39. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. 
first principle as we think about this, Jesus isn't saying let evil go unrestrained. He's not saying just let the evil people do all that they want to. Don't, don't worry about it. No, we see over and over in God's word that we have a responsibility to restrain evil, whether it's in our, uh, in our society, whether it's in the life of the church. We are called to, to hold people accountable, to make sure that there's no false teaching or false preaching that's being done. So we are called to resist evil in those ways that promotes, promote righteousness and justice in our world. What he's dealing with is how we respond to harm when it's done to us. Our culture cries payback, doesn't it? I'm gonna give them what they deserve. I'm gonna, gonna fight fire with fire. But Jesus says, pursue peace. Refuse to retaliate. Go above and beyond. Notice how he begins in verse 39b. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, some of you are thinking, well, he just wants us to get beat up. Like, what's the deal with this? This isn't what Jesus, Jesus isn't saying that we just get, we're, we're, just, we're just to get hit in the face. This is a picture of the most demeaning kind of an insult in the Jewish culture. It's not encouraging us to embrace physical abuse. Actually, there's a law against that. And that was highly, uh, that was, that could be prosecuted in that day. They could be punished by law. In those moments, Jesus is saying, when someone insults you, whenever they say something about you, what's your natural reaction? Are you gonna insult them back? Are you gonna call them, if they call you stupid, are you gonna call them stupider? Like, are you gonna play this game with people to try and one-up them in your insults? Or are you gonna say, you know what? What you say to me isn't gonna affect me. You're not gonna get me to play the same game that you're playing. We're not gonna do insult for insult. I'm gonna turn and I'm gonna walk away. You're not gonna, you're not gonna goad me into this fight. I'm gonna trust the Lord through this. He encourages us in that way. He also says in verse 40, and if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now these are two pieces of clothing. A tunic was kind of like a t-shirt or undershirt that people had that would, that would be taken if you didn't have enough money to pay your debt. If you, were, if you were in debt, you didn't have enough money, the court could say, give them your shirt. But the cloak was off limits. The cloak couldn't be taken by the court because not only was it your outer garment, it was your blanket if it was cold at night. So the courts would not do things that were over and above what is helpful for us. But what Jesus is saying is, if, you've, if you have broken a covenant, if you owe somebody something, you need to be willing to voluntarily give more than what's required of you. You need to be able to go above and beyond to make sure that they know that you're not holding any resentment towards them, that you are not going to take matters into your own hand, that you are not going to become somebody that's bitter or critical of the other person. He also teaches us in verse number 41. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now for us, we look at that and like, ah, I could walk two miles with somebody. That's not a big deal. I mean, they asked me to go one. Sure, we'll go two. The issue was this. In that day, the Roman, the Roman government, Roman soldiers could basically make you come carry their stuff for them. They could say, you right there on the front row, come with me. You're carrying my bag. But the law would only allow them to make you do that for a mile. After that, you were free to do whatever you wanted to do. You could drop the stuff. You could yell at them, I guess. You could be unkind to them. You could move on. You could do whatever you want to. Jesus says, no, 
If they bring you into their service to carry it one mile, you be generous. You go two miles with them. You go over and above what's required of you and you do it with joy. Don't become resentful. Don't throw their bag on the ground. Don't look where it is to retaliate. No, you go above and beyond. Don't be disgusted, but embrace this opportunity with joy. Then he moves on to verse number 42. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. When someone's in distress and asks for assistance, one must not turn the deaf ear to them. We don't hear the true cries of people that are in need and just turn away and walk from them. Jesus says, take those opportunities to be generous and give in those times. Pursue peace by being willing and generous to help in times of legitimate need. Why does Jesus encourage us to do this? Remember, he's talking about those who would be evil. This is their natural disposition to seek to gain from us, to seek to get from people. And Jesus is saying, that's not how you respond back. As kingdom citizens, those who have been transformed, you show them the supernatural work of Christ in your life. You be different, noticeably different, so that when they look at you, they don't think, oh, they're just like me. They look at you and they think, there is something different about that guy. There is something different about that lady and exudes the work of Christ in our lives. This moves us to kingdom principle number four. Jesus calls us to pursue love rather than hate. Pursue love rather than hate. Notice what he says starting in verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Now up to this point, we may be tracking pretty well with Jesus. Whenever we get to this passage, we look at it and we say, man, this seems almost impossible to accomplish. Love your enemies. Let's be honest with ourselves. Sometimes it's hard to love our friends, isn't it? You ever been there? I, I feel like I just don't even love my friends and now Jesus is calling me to love my enemies. Now, most of us could probably be on board if Jesus said, you know, you just ignore your enemies. Maybe tolerate your enemies, but love your enemies? Jesus, this seems impossible. First, we have to consider that our culture's view of love is quite different from what the Bible's view of love is. Our culture says that love is about emotions, isn't it? It's about how we feel about things. And, and I would venture to say it's Jesus is not telling us you got to feel warm and fuzzy about your enemies. He's not telling us that we have to be best friends with them. No, in the Bible, love is described as an action. In verse 45, we see it whenever it says that God loves, his love is expressed whenever he sends the rain on the just and the unjust. He loves the world whenever he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. So Jesus isn't saying feel warm and fuzzy about them. No, Jesus is saying, look for ways to love them through serving them. Look for ways to love them in action. He's not saying that they have to become your best friends. He's 
saying as kingdom citizens, we should actively look for ways to love our enemies. And one of the ways that he tells us to do this is to pray for them, to pray for people that seem like antagonists to us. Now, some of you may feel like that person lives in your own home. And so God is saying, before you have an argument, begin to pray. It may be somebody that's at your job and you feel like this person is my enemy. God says, how many, how many times this week have you prayed for them? How many times have you asked that I would do something in their lives that transforms and changes them? Not so that your life is better, but so that they are different. What, what about your neighbor, maybe the one that is, that is an annoying neighbor and you just want to park in their yard or you want to hold their mail so that they don't get it or something, whatever it may be. If it comes to your, it comes to your mailbox and you want to hold it out so they don't get it back. God's saying, no, have you prayed for that person? Are you looking for ways to actively serve them? Are you looking for ways to speak life into their lives? Are you looking for ways to encourage them? Are you looking for ways to be there for them? If you're a believer in the Lord, you know what this feels like experientially. Because the reality is that if we're believers in Christ, we have recognized that at one point in our lives, we were enemies with God. And God has shown his great love for us in sending his son to die on our behalf so that we could have his righteousness. So we know experientially what it means to be loved even whenever we were an enemy. And God says, now you show that same kind of love in your world. Because when people see you, they're seeing an aroma of Christ. They are seeing a representation of what it means to be transformed by God. And if we look just like our world, which hates one another for everything, a disagreement is grounds for hatred these days. God is saying we are called to be different than that. We are to express to a watching world what we have experienced as believers. This brings us to our last loophole that we see. Functional Pharisees looked for a different way of salvation. Jesus says there's only one way. Notice what we see in verse 48. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. We all want a loophole for salvation. The Pharisees wanted a law that they could accomplish, they could convince themselves they were right before a holy God rather than submit to his law. The same is often true of us. We think God is going to lower the requirement to let us in. We see in scripture that there's no one in heaven that's there based on a technicality. We are only there because of what Christ has done. Jesus says that the only way to our father is perfection. Whenever you look at your life, you probably could observe that it's not perfect, which leaves us wondering what is the way that Jesus has provided? What is the way that God has provided? It's Jesus himself. Jesus is the way. He is a perfect man. He lived perfectly, submitted to the law, fulfilled the law, obeyed the law in every way. His righteousness far exceeds in perfection the righteousness of the Pharisees, which, which is what he said we have to have. Perfect in every way. He died a criminal's death on the cross, substituting himself for us who have broken the law at, in every conceivable way. Died on the cross, rose from the dead on the third day, proving that he had accomplished what he said that he did and God offers 
him to us freely, forgiveness of our sins and a perfect righteousness. And all he calls us to is to trust him, to believe what he says, to surrender our lives to him and have new life. This is the call that God has for us. And if you're here today and you've never received that, God invites you today into his kingdom by receiving Jesus, his perfect sacrifice on your behalf. If you're here today and you are a believer, Christ calls us to pursue him by imitating his truthfulness, his faithfulness, his peace, and his love so that our watching world sees an active picture of our righteous God. Would you pray with me today? Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the time that we've had to study it together. We pray that as we go from this place, that you would challenge us, that you would help us to walk in a way that faithfully pictures you to a watching world. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. And we hope that God uses this message in you to transform you more into the image of Christ. If you have any questions about our church or you want to learn more about Jesus, visit our website at scottshill.org slash next steps. Till next time.